0: Hello everyone and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I'm Rabbi Sweet Jacobson with NRM Streamcast and we'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff and having fun while we learn. You can always send your questions and comments to our mailbag at letstalktora at gmail.com and of course I will answer as many as I can. So this week's Torah portion um, is all about the sabbatical year, the Shemitah, which happens to be exactly what's going on in Israel today. Outside of Israel, the Shemitah does not really affect us at all. It would affect us if we got produce from the land of Israel. But as far as our day-to-day lives, this is one of those commands. It doesn't affect us at all. It affects anybody who lives in Israel a lot. And it is interesting, over the years, um, the observance of Shemitah has become much more common, much more accepted. In the 1900s, first of all, for hundreds of years, there was nobody in Israel. I mean, there were a few people, not, you know, nothing major, certainly not farmers. The land was all horrible. It was, uh, there were swamps and disease and stuff. So for hundreds of years, nothing was happening. In the 1900s already, people started moving in, Zionists started coming in, and they were opening up farms. So there were some religious farms and the problem was they were so poor, um, they didn't know what to do for Shemitah. It was a very big problem. They went to Yitzhak, the Khan Inspector. Um, he came up with a concept that if the field belongs to a non Jew, then the laws of Shemitah don't affect it. But it was a special law that was really only meant it was really only meant for um for that period of time where where these people were starving. They they couldn't live. It's quite debatable if the, that ruling um is acceptable today. You know, going on in America, right? with uh, the Supreme Court right now, drove v. Wade. Do times change? Do people get to change the rules? Do we do we say, you know, that's how things were two hundred years ago? Now we have different rules. How do we look at it? But that's not the conversation we're looking for. But I'm just trying to give you a, an overall. So many, many farms um, in Israel have become Shemit observant. Not all, but certainly many. And each, each cycle, they get better and better. There's a lot of charity raised for them because uh, they have uh, difficulty. They have to pay for the equipment. That seems to be one of the biggest um, hurdles. They can survive not planting on their farm for a year. But they owe the bank money. So let's first, let's discuss what is Shemitah, and then an attitude to Shemitah, which I've been saying over this week, and you know, I, I think it really makes sense. I told it to my boys in class, told to a friend last night, and I'm getting pretty good feedback from my new thought. So first of all, here's the law of Shemitah. The basic law is no planting, no plowing, no harvesting. No fixing up the field to make it better, like fertilizing and stuff. The field lays fallow. Now you have to keep in mind the concept of leaving a field fallow is ancient, right? If you everybody knew if you planted your field year after year after year, um, the field got weaker and weaker and weaker, and your produce was no good. So you knew that you planted on this field this year, this field the next year, and you move things around. So every couple years, fields were left alone. Nowadays, there's fertilizer, so supposedly they don't have to do it. Um, I can't tell you in farms across America exactly what happens, but the, the concept is the field needs some type of rest. So the Torah is demanding the field rest every seventh year. It's a seven-year cycle. Every seven years, it is Shemitah. And by the way, that ties into the Sefirs of Omer, the Counting of Omer, which is also in sevens, because there's seven weeks. And just like after seven weeks of counting, we're going to have the Yuntif, the holiday of Shavuot. So, too, after seven Shemitah, or sabbatical cycles, we get the Yovel, or you call the Jubilee year. Um, we get the Yovel, which is a, like a double Shemitah. Now... It doesn't mean that if there are apples on the tree, you can't go eat those apples. You could go eat those apples. However, the rule is all my fields are considered ownerless. We say hefker, meaning anybody can come in and take fruit. I cannot stop them. Now, if I'm worried they'll damage my trees, then I can help them cut down the fruit so they don't destroy my trees. I'm allowed to protect my stuff, but I'm not allowed to lock up my field where no one can come in. So all the produce is ownerless. You basically take what you need, and when we get to a point where this, specifically, say apples, when there's no apples left in the field, even for the animals, so then if you have apples in your house, you actually have to bring them outside of your house, leave them on the street, and say, anybody who wants, come and take. You also can come and take, but um, that's another part of the Shemitah process. What's fascinating is the Torah promises you if you plan on keeping the Shemitah, then in the sixth year, your crops will be double and sometimes even triple because I, I planted in the sixth year, I harvested, I now have it the seventh year. The problem is that it's the eighth year I have a problem because since I didn't plant in the Shemitah year, what am I eating the following year? So that's what the problem becomes. When there's a Jubilee, then there's two years in a row that I'm behind on my planting season. So the story says you're gonna get double. And we've said this story multiple, multiple times. It's just such a beautiful story. Um, this moshav Kamius, or kibbutz kamius, can't remember if it's a moshav or kibbutz. And I believe the story's in the 50s, where they told the government we are not planting during Shemitah. Now, in the old days, the idea of a moshav, the idea of a kibbutz was very uh communist. Um, the government was in charge. Um, everybody shared the wealth, but if you didn 't plant, the government wasn 't letting you keep the land, so it was a big problem. So they went to the to the government they said, "Shmita, when I keep we're not uh, we 're not working So what are you out of your mind yeah you 're not going to plant we 're losing out whatever amount they normally make. They said we don 't understand you. Go through the records of what we produce every year." Go look what everybody else produces. I'm telling you, in the sixth year, we're going to have way more than anybody else, and that'll easily make up for us not planting. And sure enough, if you look at the at the records, like all good governments do, and how much was produced in each farm, while all the farms were producing, the number was 600. I don't know, 600-something. 600, 600 boxes, 600 uh, truckloads, I don't know. Whatever was producing, all of a sudden, in the sixth year of the cycle, um... This company has produced more than double, which would make up for the year they're off. Now, what's fascinating about that is we just talked about leaving fields fallow. It can't be the telling you a concept of leaving the field fallow. I'll tell you why. If you were a person and saying that if you leave the field fallow in the seventh year, so the following year you'll grow double, that at least normal people could understand but if you tell somebody in the sixth year you're going to grow double from all your other years or triple from all your other years because you're not planting the following year, it's ridiculous because the field gets weaker every year. By the sixth year of planting, you've wiped out so many minerals and nutrients from that farm. Um, forget about double. You, you, if you get a half, you're lucky. And here the Torah is telling you you're going to get double in the sixth year Because you plan on keeping the Shemitah. But that's what happened. So, and that's documented. So that's fascinating. And that helps me with my new attitude towards Shemitah. And I told this over to, actually, my tailor. There's nothing like, you know, you go to a tailor, Jewish guy, and he wants me to start talking to him in Torah when he's supposed to be fixing my pants. But no, he'll fix the pants, hopefully be ready next week. But it's a beautiful thing. He just wants to pause in the middle of his day and talk Torah. It was amazing. So I told him this thought. You know, if I told you that, you know, you've been working in my company for these last uh, couple years, um, and next year I expect you to, you know, continue working, but no paycheck, no paycheck. How do you want me to live? Apostle, What do you want me to do? It's like ridiculous, right? And you can imagine the same if I'm God, which I'm not. But if God says to you, if you keep the Shemitah, I'm going to give you double the next year, you know, you got to have a lot of faith. So that becomes a rather difficult concept for some people. What am I going to do? Everyone says, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? But now let's flip the story. What if I told you, you know, you're gonna you're, next year. You're not gonna. You're, you're employed by me, but you're not gonna work for me. You're gonna be off for a year, but I'm gonna pay you now, and I'm gonna give you a second check right now for the whole next year. But next year you're not working. I, I think most people could handle that. So in other words, the attitude to Shemitah has to become, not that oh, how am I gonna survive a year without planting? No, no. God said you're getting double. So God. So what's the problem? God says, I'm giving you double in the sixth year, so you won't work in the seventh year. So my attitude is no problem. You want to pay me in advance and tell me not to work? I could handle that. I think all of us could handle it. Now, many of us say, oh, I got double this year. If I work next year, I'll be really wealthy. Okay, now you missed the boat. right? God says, don't work the seventh year. You get double or triple in the sixth year, and I'm just paying you ahead of time. What's the problem? It's like such an easy... Easy concept. Now, by the way, the Sabbath is the same thing. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. Okay, first, let's explain. Uh, God tells us that what we spend on Sabbath and holidays um, doesn't cost. That was the beginning of the year on Rosh Hashanah. God decides how much money I'm making, but it doesn't include it doesn't include what I spend for the Sabbath. Somebody tells me this morning, just you know, for your information, we happen to like liver. So, like everything else, the price of skyrocketed, like crazy skyrocketed. But it was more of a a comment of things cost more money, not like we're not having liver because we like liver on the Sabbath and it costs us more money. It's not costing me more money. It's costing God more money because he says I can spend for his Sabbath, honor his Sabbath and holidays, and I'll take care of it. Now, maybe I can't have it during the week as often, which I don't, anyways. But, okay, I have to be careful what I spend during the week because uh, I don't know what my salary is now that things have uh, skyrocketed. But for Sabbath, I have nothing to worry about, right? That's the whole concept. If it doesn't cost you anything, so what are you worried about? It doesn't cost you to keep Shemitah, so who cares? It doesn't cost you to keep the Sabbath, so who cares? Now, you have to be careful. The rest of the week does cost you, so that you have to... You have to be careful on that. But but this idea, keeping Shemitah, keeping Sabbath, it's costing me. It's not costing me anything. I'm not saying God always makes it easy. Sometimes it's a test. In the end, it won't cost you, but maybe there'll be a period. We, there's all those stories in the um, 1920s, 1930s, where if you try not to work on Sabbath, it was almost impossible. You got fired from week to week. And there were those who withstood And there were those that did not withstand the challenge because they just needed to put food on the table. They couldn't do it. So it's a little bit hard for me to tell people what they should have been doing, what they shouldn't have been doing. It's just a very hard concept. But at the end of the day, this is what the Torah says, and this is what we have records of, of, multiple different miracles, Um remember a story i saw a couple of years ago um in israel when they're trying to help the farmers so you go to a guy who's not religious and said, you know we want you to keep shemitah i says what are you crazy so one of those stories was the guy was working on his vineyard and for those who know grapes and wines it's a lot a lot of work you don't just leave the grapes alone for a year and hope for the best you're constantly taking care of them to finally get that amazing harvest that will produce your award winning you know spectacular wine so he really wanted to keep Shemitah he understood the concept he understood it was important but he didn't know what to do with his with his grapes like I've been working for years to create these amazing vines and now you're telling me to throw it in the garbage so The person working with him said, "You know, that's a very good question. Would you mind? We have some of our own experts. Would you mind if they came down to your field, checked out the field, checked out, you know, what a pH, uh, the pHs of the ground, and the check the leaves and check the twigs, and uh, see what they say." So a guy comes down, and he's taking, he's he's touching the ground, he's touching the leaves, and he's touching the bark, and he. Probably did some uh, some uh, measurements. And he said to the guy, I know it's going to be hard to believe, but listen to me. If you want to have superstar wine, you should take all these vines and cut them to within, I don't know, a couple inches of the ground and leave it. That's what you'll do for Shemitah, and that's what you got to do. And the guy didn't know what to do. Like, he's been babying these vines for years. What should he do? And finally he decided... I'm doing it. I ever All my friends are going to say I'm crazy, right? I've been growing and producing these beautiful vines. I've got to chop it all the way down. And he did it. And he kept the Shemitah. And his friends made fun of him like anything. And then, the next year, not the Shemitah, year, but the following year, the vines have been growing, and he produced the most amazing grapes. And he, he actually had that superstar vintage and award-winning wine because it gave Shemitah. Now, it's true here the payment came after Shemitah, not before, but the fact of the matter is there's there's a pretty modern story. I don't know if it's two cycles ago, but it's pretty, pretty recent. Okay, let's move on. A lot of stuff in this Torah portion, and I decided this week I want to see if I can get uh, a few of them. So one of them is called the Shemitah. Shemitah, I'm sorry, Shemitah. Well, it's called ribis. What does ribis mean? Ribis means interest. It's a very fascinating concept that one Jew is not allowed to lend another Jew and get paid back interest. So now let's look at the picture. If I have a car rental company, I can rent you a car. If I have a chair rental company, I can rent you chairs. I can rent you warmers. I can rent you tents. I can rent you a bouncy slide. I can rent anything. The only thing I can't rent is money. And as God is forcing you, God is forcing you to to do charity with your money. God doesn't want you to go ahead and start fixing something over here. I don't know why. I shouldn't be fixing things while I'm talking, but I am anyways. Okay, that's better. So God is forcing you to do charity with your money because I cannot rent you my money. Right? And as you think about it, I mean, take a bank loan. You're basically renting the money, right? And I'm going to pay my interest. And, uh, you know, we're, we're used to going in interest and stuff. But is it different than renting a car? I borrow a car. I pay, I'm paying money for it. I borrow money. I'm paying money for it. But on money, God says, no, you have to do business. Now, it's a very interesting thought the other day in a actually a book that i just bought myself uh, but it's based on the but there's a verse it's really a gemara the gemara says that hashem the talmud i'm sorry hashem lends to those who give charity so hashem lends me if i give charity sounds like if i give charity right which is technically God's money, but if I give charity, so God, not forget about the reward I'm supposed to get. Not only the reward, God's going to give me extra. So the question, again, it's a little bit of an esoteric question, but I, I try to wrap your head around it. Um, the idea is, um, is that interest? In other words, yeah, God has to give me a reward for things I do. Fine. But, but that the reward is sort of like a payment. You do a good deed, you get paid. Now you're giving me extra? Extra makes it sound like I'm getting interest. I thought we don't do interest. That's the question. Now, again, in some ways, a very strange question because it's all part of the reward. Who cares? Right? It's all part of the reward. But in a, in, a, in a different level, in a different plane, we're just trying to get a, to conceptualize if interest is not a good thing so I don't do interest, so God doesn't do interest. Again, he rewards me for what I do. But the extra sounds like interest. In other words, if you if you lend me money, I'm supposed to give it back for free. I can't give back extra. Extra is called interest. You don't get extra. That's the, the concept of the question. So a very interesting rule, like what happens? Now, interest, by the way, Um, has, I don't want to say developed, but rabbinically, there's interest on stuff also. For example, and nowadays could be a bigger problem, um, I borrow a can of tomatoes. So I borrowed six ounces of tomato sauce. I can't give you back eight ounces of tomato sauce. I gave you back more than what you lent me. Right? In other words, I didn't buy it from you, and now you're buying it back from me. I gave you six ounces. You give me back eight ounces. You're not allowed to do that. You give me back more than what I gave to you. So that also, by the way, gets into the concept of interest. So according to the rabbis, you're not allowed to do that. Now, it happens to be there is a way around it. That generally speaking, for Torah scholars, we're not concerned because they know to give back the rest of the present. And even people, because of that idea, so even people understand that if i giving you back, like, you know, ladies, neighbors, they borrow a cup of sugar or a, or a container of this or, or a few cups of that. So when they give it back, they're always very good at saying the rest is present. Because as soon as you start measuring, I gave you exactly to this line. Now I have to give you back exactly to this line. You make more problems that way than anything else. But people that do that, do that I gave you exactly three eggs. You have to give back... Uh, three extra-large eggs. So when you give me back the eggs, you have to give me back three extra-large eggs. People that are very measured, that whatever I gave you, I give exactly the same back, or vice versa, then you do run into somebody's interest ribis problems. So, therefore, um, ladies try to be very good about it, and men also, but we're not borrowing stuff to make cakes. Um, but the same concept that anything extra it's just a present a present i'm allowed to give you i can't give you more as a because you gave me something so as a payment i'm giving you more that falls into the into the into the mode of of this interest but if i'm going ahead and just saying it's a present that generally is no problem okay now with that being said So Hashem also is looking at it the same way. When we give to God, right, it's not a it's not a loan, right, not expecting payment. When we have a relationship with God, now it's this idea to go to somebody in the street and borrow six ounces and pay back eight ounces. You don't know this person. Why are you giving a present? But when I have a relationship with God, so... God gives me the charity, gives me the money, uh, I go ahead and give the charity. So God says, uh, it's like I'm giving it to God and right? I'm giving the poor person. So it's conceptually that I'm taking care of something for God, I'm God's messenger. So when God pays me back and he gives me a little extra, God says, just a present, we're friends. We got a relationship. When I have a relationship with God, so I go ahead and I say, that uh, okay, God, we're, we're 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 good buddies. So I give this charity. When you give me back my payment, you can throw in a little extra as a present, no problem. And with that, I saw a fascinating story. Um, there was a boy; the family moved to Israel. So I told my class today. I said, you know, when you think of somebody moving to Israel, Jerusalem, uh, the Tel Aviv area, those are like the or in the outskirts of Jerusalem. That's a very into area where people move. But this boy actually moved up north to the city of Tzvass. It's up in the north. You go outside. The wind is blowing. There's more mountains there. And again, I don't know exactly. It wasn't clear on the story. Um, the family lived in an apartment building, like most people in Israel live in apartment buildings. And there was some type of bridge that went from the apartment building to this area called Kana'an, and that's where the grocery store was. Now, for whatever safety precautions, uh, at the end of this bridge, um, to get into the apartment building, there was a a gate, probably a door, like the whole thing was gated, you couldn't just walk in, and you had to have a key to get back and forth. So when the boy moved to Israel, so the parents said, you know, your job, everybody has to have jobs around here, your job is you like to wake up early. Anyways, your job is that you're going to go to the market. you're going to go through the gate, you're going to cross the bridge. Here's the market. you're going to get the milk every morning, maybe some eggs, maybe some bread. you know this story, I think, is is not so old, by the way, but um, you know, my wife grew up. Uh, it, no, nobody went shopping and put stuff in the freezer for a week. I guess we'll go to the store nowadays. We'll put three or four loaves of bread in the freezer and go through it during the week. You'll buy a couple of big containers of milk. You'll buy a couple dozen eggs and put it in the fridge. When she grew up, every morning, her father, on the way back from synagogue, would stop in and get a loaf of bread, a container of milk, and maybe eggs, and maybe cottage cheese. As whatever the morning's breakfast and maybe lunch was, he bought on the way home. By the corner, I mean, they weren't really grocery stores. they were In those days, there were holes in the wall. Nowadays, everybody needs big grocery stores, but... That was very, very normal and common. So this boy's job is every day he's going to go and, and get the stuff in the grocery store. No problem. Very responsible boy. He's doing this for weeks, months. And he has, he's just holding one key. One day for one strange reason. The mother says, um, you know, take my key ring. Now, but be very careful because all these keys are very important to us. I need all these keys. If you lose these keys, it's going to make a lot of problems. Just replacing the locks, replacing the keys, and there's a wallet attached to it. So please be careful. You know, when you have to say to somebody a bunch of times, "Please be careful," probably you shouldn't be giving them the keys. But okay, fine, that's debatable. In any in any case, boy, he's you know being very careful, and he he takes the key and he unlocks the gates and he walks across the bridge and he makes sure the key's in his pocket with a wallet. He checks, no problem. He goes to buy a lot of groceries and. He goes back and he gets back to the gate and he reaches into his pocket to get the keys and sure enough, there's no keys in his pocket. And he's like beside himself like, oh man, my mother warned me and she told me I must be careful and I can't lose the keys and they're so important and here I went and lost the keys. And he retraces his steps and he's looking in the bridge and he goes back to the store. He can't find him. Can't find him. What's he supposed to do? And we'll have to get back to this story to see exactly what happened because the music is playing and we wouldn't want to go overtime. So I hope you enjoyed it short and sweet as always. Thank you, of course, to our sponsors and listeners. You know, I can't do it without you. Thank you to our production team. We have David, Cisco, and Andy in the back. I have our one, Food for Thought. Until next time, I am Henry C. Jacobson. You've been listening to Dead Arm Streamcast. And until next time, don't forget to think about it.